Welcome to the 436th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome nuclear historian Robert Jacobs, author of the forthcoming book, Nuclear Bodies, the Global Hibaksha. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch live on Twitter. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word, send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of February 27, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, the nation of Japan has lost 23,325 people to COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. This is the life of Eileen Baviera. This appeared in Time Magazine, April 3rd, 2020 by Hilary Lung. Eileen Baviera was a professor, a government analyst, the head of an NGO and a public speaker, but she will be remembered as an expert who studied China for the sake of her home, the Philippines. Baviera got her start as one of the Philippines' foremost China watchers in 1979 when she began her graduate studies at the University of the Philippines, specializing in contemporary China. Later, she became one of the first researchers to receive a Chinese government scholarship to spend two years as a foreign student in Beijing. She also worked part-time at the Chicago Tribune's Beijing Bureau, compiling clips of Western media reports on China. In 1980, she returned to the Philippines and worked as a government researcher at the Department of Foreign Affairs, from there, she ventured back into academia, teaching at Ateneo de Manila University and the University of the Philippines, where she earned a PhD in political science in 2003. She then served as dean of the university's Asian Center from 2003 to 2009. Her colleagues and students remember her for her balanced insight on Philippines-China relations and influential ideas about the social and economic issues common to the two developing countries. She shared her network with us, her students, and was responsible for making the study of international relations in the Philippines accessible to as many people as possible. Ederson de los Trino Tapia, one of Barriera's former students, says. He is now a public administration professor and dean at the College of Continuing Advanced and Professional Studies at the University of Makati in Manila. I will never forget Eileen's impact on my life as a young international relations student. Javiera died at age 60 on March 23, 2020, at the San Lovato Hospital in Manila after contracting the coronavirus. She had attended an academic conference in Paris where one participant was diagnosed with COVID-19, her university said. She was founding president of the Asia-Pacific Pathways to Progress, an NGO that promotes peace and cultural understanding through international dialogue and cooperation. She was an exacting but generous mentor to the next generation of social scientists 
and strategic thinkers in the country and in Southeast Asia, the organization wrote in a Facebook post. She was a dear friend and an exceptional individual. The life of Eileen Barriera, who died in 2020 of COVID-19. Okay, let's turn to the conversation for today. I'm really happy to introduce Robert Jacobs to you. Robert Jacobs is a professor of history at the Hiroshima Peace Institute and the Graduate School of Peace Studies of Hiroshima City University. He's the author of the book, The Dragon's Tale, Americans Face the Atomic Age, which appeared in 2010, also has appeared in a Japanese translation, which appeared in 2013. He's the editor of Filling the Hole in the Nuclear Future, Art and popular culture respond to the bomb, as well as other many other books and journal articles on nuclear history. Starting in 2010, he co-founded the Global Hibakusha Project. The project continues field research at radiation-affected sites and in radiation-affected communities around the world. His book, based on this research, Nuclear Bodies: The Global Hibakusha, will be published by Yale University Press this year. Robert Jacobs, Bo Jacobs, it's great to see you. Welcome to COVID Calls. Uh, thank you, Scott. It's wonderful to be here. It's good to see you too. I like to start the way I usually do, find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Sure. Um, I'm in Hiroshima, uh, in my home in Hiroshima. And here we have, uh, in Japan, as an American in Japan, it doesn't feel so bad. Um, but we have been in a state of a sort of quasi state of emergency for a few months here in Hiroshima with the Omicron virus. Hiroshima prefecture actually was quite high. Its numbers were quite high for Japan for a prefecture without a giant city in it. Um, but it's eased off quite a bit now and, uh, things are opening back up in, in Japan uh, you know, the Japanese constitution was written by, was primarily written by the United States occupation force. And so one of the things that was written into it was that there's very little power for the state to compel behavior. So here in Japan, this, the central government can't compel businesses to shut down. Um, and so, uh, so it's, it, it's always been this quasi state of emergency. It's never been like a full shutdown, even when there was, you know, when we were supposed to be more or less shut down, it it was people were still out and about, people were still in restaurants and things like that. So right now it's eased up and things are things are definitely feeling more open and people are out and about quite a bit more. So the uh, the those kinds of restrictions are intensely local or whatever kinds of restrictions can be placed, but the travel restrictions are are national. And yes. It's been hard for me from a distance to make sense of them. And the Olympics, of course, threw a wrench in everything. Yeah. Um, where do things stand right now? I mean, the borders are closed still, I guess. Yeah. See, this is the the central government can't compel behavior of citizens, but it can completely exclude outsiders, right. <laughs> as you can see. Very, very strict. Um there's been a real uproar among various groups, one of which is academia, where we can't bring graduate students here. Uh, and so we've been teaching graduate students on Zoom throughout the pandemic. And so this we're coming up on the, the academic year begins at the beginning of April at here. And so uh, 
in on Tuesday, I guess on March 1st, there's supposed to be a significant easing in the number of visas granted for long-term stay for students, for business people, for people coming. Uh, I, but I have colleagues that are, you know, foreigners who have spent this entire pandemic outside of Japan because they were outside of Japan at the time. They were unable to return. And it's made it very difficult for my wife and I to consider going back to visit family in the States because we know, you know, even though we have permanent residency, it may not be so easy to re-enter. Um, so there's still significant quarantine on entry. Uh, that depends, differs a little bit country by country, but there's rumors that that's easing up a little bit. The business community has really been pushing the central government to, to ease up in general. And so, uh, so it feels like it's relaxing. The government has been announcing that it's relaxing, but it's gradual. But it, it, I think that of the visas that had been granted that, uh, for for business people or for students or for people you know that were not tourists, I think something like something under five percent were actually allowed to enter the country. Mm. It's going to be that's going to be quite a shock when the when borders open again. I, I mean, you know, some countries the countries have handled this in so many different ways, um, and this idea that you would sort of be a little bit more lazy fair about control of the pandemic within the country, but then have this fence up. Um, I don't think there are too many other countries that have handled it quite that, quite that way. Well, you know, Japan is an island nation and it has some tradition of closing itself off to the outside world. Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which I think for a lot of people here that it doesn't feel so unnatural as an American, it feels to me to have these, these kinds of restrictions. So it's, uh, so in, in some ways it's not surprising. Um, you know, there's, it's also, you know, and again, just speaking as an American, it's in, I, th I think it's, the population is well over 90% Japanese. So, uh, non-Japanese people and the majority of non-Japanese people, of course, are, are other East Asian people here right. primarily. Right. And so, uh, closing the doors somehow doesn't seem to strike people as a giant, uh, disruption. People, you know, it's a, it's a way to stay mm. safe mm. is the way that I think most people feel about it. I'd like to ask you if you wouldn't mind sharing a personal memory of this pandemic period. Uh, I call it the impossible question because of the yeah, yeah. compression and density of, of memory. But I, I would like to know if there's a, a sort of a, a moment in time, something that happened or an association of this pandemic that really sticks with you right now. Yeah, there, there definitely is. I mean, you know, uh, my wife and I, which is our family unit here, neither of us have contracted COVID yet. So we haven't, you know, had that experience. We have had some family members that received Omicron, so it was not so bad. So for me, so we've been fairly insulated from it. But one of the things that really stands out when I think about it is really the very, very beginning. Because the last time I left Hiroshima, was a three-week trip to the U.S. And I left here on February 19th, 2020. And I returned March 4th. So this is just a few weeks after the, after the awareness that there was a pandemic, you know, that there was uh, a flu um, emerged onto the global scene. And it was a very strange time to travel. And Partly what struck me as really, really odd was I flew from Hiroshima to Tokyo and then from Tokyo to San Francisco. 
So this is a flight coming into San Francisco from Northeast Asia, from Tokyo, easily a transit point for people leaving China at that time or any time. And when I landed in San Francisco, there was absolutely no protocol of any sort. They did not measure temperatures. They did not ask people if they had been to Wuhan. They did not ask people anything. You got off the plane and you were free range. You just went out into the society. And that seemed a little bit shocking to me at the time. And on return three weeks later to Japan, it was very rigorous on entry. Uh, you totally had to say where you had been. Everybody got measured for temperature. Um, you know, it was, it was significantly different. And then watching the way that the pandemic unfolded in both places, those became sort of markers for me for different kinds of social protocols in the U S just come on in and, yeah. and it, everything ran rampant. And, uh, here it was very, very tightly controlled from the beginning and, you know, for a country with a population the size of Japan, it's been very well contained uh, by contrast to many other places. Thank you for sharing that. And it's it's like you left you left in one century and in one reality, and you arrived in another century or another reality. Seems like absolutely. I I, I do a lot of field work normally, so I'm traveling. You know, yeah. uh, and often to odd parts of the world frequently. And now I have, since I returned from that trip, which is almost exactly two years ago, I have not left this city. I have not even been to a surrounding city. Um, so it just shifted my world completely, along with everybody else. That experience of, you know, so when you arrived in the U.S. in March, you said February of, of um, 2020, yeah. there already was the China travel ban. The yeah. Trumpian sort of rhetoric about, you know, excluding the virus and, and a sort of conflation of Asia, but with the emphasis on China. You've just right. demonstrated the sort of, you know, rhetorical dog and pony show that was because yeah, if it's a absolutely. flight coming from Tokyo, it's an, it's, that's a transit point for people all over Asia. Absolutely. It's, it's definitely, it's a huge transit point. There, there were very likely people on that plane who had just come from all kinds of places. Sure. Well, I want to um, thank you for sharing that and and for giving us the update on what's been going on yeah. in Japan as well. Um, I want to ask you, so you have this book coming out, right? and I want to start with that. And I think we have um, lots of things to talk about today. I mean, your work on the sort of history of nuclear weapons and nuclear power and the sort of long legacies, so what sometimes I call a slow disaster of, of radiation is, um, it's just absolutely essential work. And I'm really glad that you, this book is coming out. So why don't we just start with the book and you can tell, tell me a bit about, you know, what it's about and then let's, let's, let's take it from there. I want to um, just remind people you're listening to COVID Calls and I'm talking today with Bo Jacobs, a historian of all things nuclear and his uh, new book is called nuclear bodies the global hibaksha and that's going to be published by yale coming out here real soon i presume so lay out the landscape for us of this book sure sure uh first i'll just uh define a term or two the word hibaksha um which is very known here where where we are hibaksha is a japanese word for survivor of the nuclear attacks on hiroshima and nagasaki 
So the people here in Hiroshima who lived through that attack are hibakusha. And global hibakusha is a phrase that has been used more and more, and I use it in my work uh, and my colleagues that I work with on this project. Um, it refers to the primarily to the people who have been exposed to radiation since 1945. Um, since 1945, we tend to think nuclear weapons were used in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. This was tragic. We all know the legacies. We all know the damage that was done. Um, and, and we're glad that nuclear weapons have not been used again. But the reality is that there have been over 2,000 nuclear detonations since 1945. Um, we think of the Cold War as a period of time in which nuclear weapons didn't get used, but statistically there was a nuclear weapon detonating every 8.6 days during the Cold War. And about a quarter of those, a little more than a quarter of those were, were detonated in the atmosphere, which means that there were fallout clouds that traveled away from the test sites. Um, so there have been millions of people altogether who have been exposed to fallout radiation and millions more who have been exposed to radiation from nuclear accidents like uh, the ones at Chernobyl and Fukushima. And there's multiple other ones in which many people were exposed to radiation. There's also lots and lots of people who've been exposed to radiation from production, uh, from the production of nuclear materials, uranium mining, uh, lots of people have been exposed to radiation and continue to be exposed to radiation. And um, and the production of plutonium, the production of nuclear fuel, the operation of nuclear power plants, just in this general uh, industry, lots of people have been exposed to radiation. And there's a number of reasons that the people who've been exposed to radiation in these situations, except for a very small group, for example, we all know people were exposed to radiation after Chernobyl. Um, but there's really been millions and millions of people all over the world who have been exposed to radiation from these technologies and from the testing of weapons and accidents. And so these are the global hibakusha. They are the radiation exposed people all over the world. And so the, the book, uh, it, the book is based on what those experiences were like. And it starts off talking about why these people are sort of invisible to us medically and scientifically, how the medical and scientific models have made them uh, have have made them not seem like people who are affected by radiation. Uh, the book also explores what it's like to live in a place where you know that there's a lot of radioactive contamination and you're uncertain what your risks and what your dangers are, how that has altered communities. People have been displaced. People have been uh, spending their whole lives themselves and their families eating contaminated food or uncertain if they're eating contaminated food. And, uh, and ultimately what the book argues is that the cold war was a limited nuclear war. Uh, we tend to think of a nuclear war as a war between combatants, but that was so risky because of the nature of these weapons that in a sense, the Soviet union and the United States were each just constantly blowing up weapons and part of what they were doing was demonstrating their technology, demonstrating their brutality, demonstrating their will and capacity to engage in warfare. And in this standoff, millions of people were harmed. Uh, each country, you know, sometimes I say that the Cold War was a war by the U.S. against the U.S. population and the Soviet Union against the Soviet population. 
But this is extended a little bit in, in, in this case because there was also a lot of testing outside of national borders. The United States tested a lot of weapons in the Marshall Islands. And so, and other countries tested weapons in colonial and post-colonial spaces. So, um, so this book basically looks at this history of exposures to various people from these different means and tries to understand it as a global history. Um, because in a sense, there's, there's a way that siloing off these histories into national histories, for example, the victims of U.S. testing or the victims of French nuclear testing, um, there, there's a couple of problems for me with that. One is that you're, you're taking a perpetrator perspective. You're looking at this from the point of view of the people who did the irradiating. Um, but when you, when you silo people off like that, you can begin to reduce them down to a number of people, which doesn't seem so dramatic. It seems like, yeah, some bad things happened. But when you put this community together globally, because the experience from their point of view is a common experience, it didn't really matter who was irradiating them. Um, then you begin to see that it was millions of people and you begin to see that there was a very large impact here, just spread out and obscured for a number of reasons so that it was hard to really understand that there was so much violence being inflicted on people in all kinds of remote places. I want to, I want to pick up with that last point first, actually, but around numbers. Um, yeah. and I read the numbers, um, that the Japanese government is reporting, as of today, dead from uh, COVID-19 throughout the pandemic, 23,325. Yeah. And I often read the, I read the numbers and then I, I read an obituary to, to try to, first of all, the numbers are, are, are staggering and also probably low in most countries. Maybe Japan has got a better system. Um, you know, it seems like the, the greater the number gets, of course, the more there's gonna be problems with undercount. But, you know, it's directly relevant to what you're talking about, because um, when people talk about nuclear weapons, they begin numbers, they begin to start spouting off numbers, numbers of people who uh, died in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then depending on where they want to go with that argument, it's sort of one of two rhetorical moves is made. They either it's horrifying to them and they're against that and they may be there for nuclear abolition and they, they leave those numbers there as a marker to let us know that something happened that shouldn't happen again. Or they put those numbers next to numbers of people who died in, in Tokyo air raid, people who died in air raids in Germany. Yeah. Um, and they say, see, the war is hell and, and, and that's just the way it is. And I feel like it shuts down, I feel like both of those moves kind of shut down conversation. So in this book, you're, you're, you're still grappling with this problem of uh, you know, the global and large numbers of exposures to uh, nuclear radiation of multiple different types. How do you how do you think about that problem of the numbers, and what are your sources? You know, when you sort of dive into um, the source material, how did they handle the problem of large numbers? Uh, well, needless to say, this is a really critical issue, um, and one of the ways that you can frame it is you can look at the incredibly huge gaps on claims of how many people died from Chernobyl. Uh, now we know Chernobyl was a, a terrible nuclear accident. We know that there was a distribution of, you know, there was a, a, a big explosion and a fire that burned for a couple of weeks, spreading radiation around. Um, but if you look at the, at various tabulations of how many deaths can be ascribed to Chernobyl, you see in different studies, anything from 33 people, 5,000 people, 12,000 people, 
50,000 people, right? Now, how is that possible? How, how is that possible that something, that there can be that kind of divergence for something that we all know happened and we all know had some impact? Um, and this, this reflects part of how this history has stayed hidden is that there's ways to construct how you look at who is affected and how you look at uh, how people are affected where you can make that number larger or make that number smaller, depending on exactly where you draw the boundaries. Um, in something like the Tokyo Air Raids, we have a fairly certain number of the people who died. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it, there's some very, you know, we can't be exact, but we have roughly an idea. In the nuclear attack on Hiroshima, we have a pretty good idea of, let's just say, you know, roughly the number of people who died. Um, but, you know, when it comes to, uh, so, um, first, there's a couple of different things that, that I'd like to say about this. Yeah. First of all, one of the key things is that, uh, it depends on how you define harm from radiation. Hmm. Um, radiation, when, when there is radiation, there are two ways that it, that it affects us. One is that it affects us externally. There's rays, radioactive rays that pass through our bodies. And the other is that there are particles and particles are very, very low in radiation compared to those rays, but particles uh, stick around uh, and they can get inside of us. The rays are sort of there and gone. When, when, a when the nuclear weapon exploded in Hiroshima or in Nagasaki, there's this burst of radioactive rays and they, it lasts less than a minute. During that minute, just like the other energy released from the weapon, you have heat released, you have blast released, you have uh, radioactive rays released. There's just this burst of this energy out from the weapon. And all of those, all of those forms of energy create damage. The blast crushes buildings, the heat you know, burns things, sets things on fire. The radioactive rays penetrate through everything. But the forces themselves are gone after in less than a minute. So there's damage inflicted and then they're gone. Uh, you can think of the radiation as like an x-ray. You know, you go get an x-ray and you're, you're sitting there and then the x-ray is on and then the x-ray is off. And the x-ray is off. You no longer have any radiation, but radiation did pass through your body in order to get that picture. Um, now, particles are completely different. This is fallout, radioactive fallout. Uh, radioactive fallout is a whole range of different chemicals. A whole different, they're called radionuclides because they're radio, they're radioactive chemical, they're radioactive particles. And depending on the chemistry, depending on what particle it is, they can have, they can remain dangerous for several hours, several weeks, or hundreds of years, or thousands of years, or millions of years. So once these particles fall out of clouds, the risk they pose is really, it really varies. Some of them may pose risks for, generations. Um, and since they're distributed, they're very hard to detect. Uh, a Geiger counter mostly detects external radiation. And if it detects particles, it detects a lot of them. There has to be a lot of radiation coming from them. But the way that we get affected by particles is that we swallow one. Mm. And when we swallow one, it, it can pass through our body, but it can also remain inside of our body. Uh, cause it's a chemical and just like the chemicals in food, our body uses chemicals. So certain chemicals it uses in different ways. For example, iodine 131, 
Uh, the body, when iodine, when it has iodine in food, it puts it in the thyroid gland. So if it's radioactive form of iodine, it puts that in the thyroid gland. Uh, strontium 90, which is a fallout particle from nuclear explosions, it's very similar to calcium. So if it ends up in the body, the body puts it in the teeth or in the bones. And if you hang on to a particle like that, it, it doesn't give off a ton of, irra of radiation, but it irradiates the cells around it 24 hours a day. And over the course of five, 10 years, that can cause cancers and other diseases. Well, there's a couple of reasons that the numbers get difficult. Uh, one is we don't know who got a particle inside of them and who didn't. So for example, you know, there's a lot of fallout in Fukushima. So is it dangerous to live there or is it not dangerous to live there? In theory, we should know the answer to that question. Um, but it depends on what you call danger and what you call risk. So what governments call risk, uh, the reason you could say only 33 people died at Chernobyl is based on medical models that were done in Hiroshima, which studied the Hibaksha, the survivors, and created a large medical database that correlates radiation exposure with health outcomes. So they, there's over 100,000 people in this study. The lifespan study has been going on since uh, about 1950. And essentially, for each person in this study, their dose is reconstructed. How much radiation were you exposed to? And then their health is tracked. What diseases do they develop? What, how old are they when they die? Is there early mortality? And this database then correlates the radiation exposure and the health outcome for 100,000 people to create a predictive model. But this, this study only looks at external radiation. It only measures external radiation because that's all we can know about these people. We don't know who got particles inside of them and who didn't get particles inside of them. So it only looks at the people that were within three kilometers of the explosion who definitely had external radiation passed through their bodies. So we now use that model to say whether people are at risk or people are not at risk. So are you at risk in Fukushima? Are you at risk downwind from Chernobyl? Well, the external radiation levels are low because it's been a few years and the particles have all spread out. So we say, no, you're according to this model, there's no risk because the radiation levels are not mm. high enough to correlate to risk. But that's not the form that the risk is in. The form that the risk is in is particles. And those particles may be in anybody's food those particles may end up in uh, in dairy products, in water. Those particles may end up inside of people. As I said, many of them remain dangerous for thousands of years. So they may end up inside of somebody 10 years later. So we don't call those diseases caused this way. We don't have any way to, to, to ascribe causation. And therefore, you can say 33 people died at Chernobyl. Or... You can look at the increase of diseases in a large population over 20 or 30 years and say this rise in this disease or that disease correlates probably to people internalizing fallout. So the numbers are not, uh, the, the numbers reflect what it is you want to look at. Um, and that makes it very, very problematic. Uh, this is one way that the, that the US can test weapons in the Marshall Islands and say, Oh, you're all fine. The radiation levels are low.
um, let me just quickly remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Bo Jacobs today about his new book, Nuclear Bodies, the Global Hibakusha. And um, there's so much in what you're describing there. And I, and, and I really appreciate you going into the, the detail of the measurement problem because that speaks exactly to you know what ends up counting and, and what doesn't. And uh, I published, a, uh, had a chance to write a piece with Robert Lifton, which we did on the 10th anniversary of right. um, of Fukushima triple disaster. And um, as I was sort of looking for a kind of opening for that piece, I thought, let me see, you know, let me just look around and see who's marking this anniversary. And of course, the International Atomic Energy Agency was. And their president had this extraordinary video in which he claimed that no one had died from the power plant uh, explosion, yeah. Fukushima Daiichi. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's exactly this, you know, this, this logic that, yeah. that you're describing. And, and he has the data. Of course, he has a particular type of data yeah. to back that up. Now, this is not to, I mean, there's other kinds of problems here. I mean, there's the exposures and that there's the radionuclides and, and then there's, and then, you know, maybe illness that develops over time. But then there's also the mental stress yes. of yeah. not knowing, which is another form of trauma, which we are not good at measuring. Yeah. And I remember when I visited Fukushima, or excuse me, when I visited Hiroshima for the first time, and we met with some Habaksha there, yeah. which you helped facilitate. Yeah. Um, and they shared their life story, and some of them had not, we met three, and I think two of them had not told anyone about their experience in 1945 mm -hmm. until years, sometimes decades later. Yeah. And to think of that stress building over all of that time. So even to, to say, well, the measure then is, it was your life shortened? But, but that yeah. doesn't talk about quality of life. So I guess what I'm trying to get at here is the problem of measurement is not just about knowing how much was someone exposed to, but it's also about their fear, the, the quality of their life, and what sort of um, gyrations that governments and agencies do to try to keep people focused on a particular type of data set. Absolutely. Um, this, you know, the, this study is used to dismiss fears. It's used to pacify people or to calm people. Um, and those things you mentioned are exactly right. Uh, because we are not just our medical charts. Um, the, the, the global Hibakusha project, which, which I conducted primarily with my research colleague, Mick, Dr. Mick Broderick from, uh, Murdoch University in Perth in Australia. Um, our focus from the start even though we 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 got interested in the medical aspects of this um our focus was in non-epidemiological impacts of radiation exposures because in communities like uh you know let's say the nuclear testing in australia in algeria in french polynesia when people have been treated seriously like there's something to study about their experiences it's almost exclusively an epi epidemiological study you know what kinds of diseases can we ascribe to their exposures to radiation and we specifically wanted to look at non-epidemiological things and this is really what we did and those things that you mention are are central um being uncertain so you can even start here in hiroshima like you had just mentioned you know that you were exposed to radiation and you don't know if you're going to get sick or not. And you have anxiety about whether your children are going to have health problems. And so you don't talk to them about it because you don't want to burden them with your worries as well. And 
and so their whole childhood, their relationship with you is in the middle of that is this anxiety that has been placed there by, by historical circumstances and that affects people deeply. Um, then you have people in, in other places, like for example, in downwind from, uh, the Kazakh nuclear test site, uh, there were almost 500 nuclear explosions there in Kazakhstan, including hydrogen bombs with giant clouds. And, and there's a million people that live in the downwind area from there. And some of the villages were heavily impacted with fallout and they are 30, 40 kilometers away from where these detonations were. And they're still fairly contaminated with fallout and people, people living there are, you know, they know that their food may contain these particles. They know that when there's brush fires, there's radiation being released. Um, and, and so the the kinds the the level of stress that you live with the level of uncertainty that you live with you know it can become overwhelming um and this kind of anxiety uh, an example of the of of it, it, an example of this is uh which which really struck me was when i was up in fukushima in in 2014 and a friend of mine was telling me about when uh her her or a journalist was telling me about a daycare where a child had fallen while playing outside and skinned his knee and breaks in the skin are one way that these particles get inside of people. And so uh, the child's mother and some of the other mothers had created a little figure, a little doll figure about the size of her son, and they covered it with two-sided tape and knocked it over in this yard and then would take a Geiger counter to see if they could detect particles. And this was a way of trying to comfort herself that her son falling and skinning his knee probably didn't mean that he's now going to have some serious health problem, but every day she's going to wonder and she's going to have anxiety over it. Um, so this uncertainty can, can just be really impactful on, on all kinds of parts of people's lives. Uh, and, and I would add that there are other social disruptions that happen. Um, uh, for example, in, in certain places, people have been forcibly displaced, uh, because the lands have been contaminated. Well, you know, these are people who now cannot visit the graves of their ancestors. Uh, they cannot live in the house that their grandparents built. They, um, they have to abandon the family farm that's been in the family for as long as, you know, so now they're, they're living as they're living outside of their community. They're living now having to get regular jobs and sort of fit into a society. And, um, you, you know, cause you live here in Northeast Asia that maintaining ancestors graves is a huge burden on sure. people. And if you can't maintain your ancestors graves after, I mean, at, at, you know, at first you can tell yourself, well, this thing happened and I can't do that. But if it's 20 years later and you're like, you know, the spirits of my ancestors wonder, do, you know, I, do I not care about them? And, uh, you know, we live in the world the ancestors built. So that sense of personal failure, of obligation, of familial obligation, there's all of these ways that these disruptions um, can really affect people, which have nothing to do directly with disease causation, but they can certainly lead to uh, emotional distress. And, and of course, you know, lead on to uh, illnesses because of living with so much stress and so much uh, anxiety and depression. I want to tie this back to, to COVID in, in a way that um, I've been eager to ask you about, which is about visibility and invisibility. And yeah. um, 
I think about the the sort of three textbook images of the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. And there's there's, there's iconic ones, there's three ones. There's the mushroom cloud, there's the decimated hypocenter, and then there's the woman with the burns on her back. Those are the, right. the three, and even just saying that most people probably can conjure these images. Absolutely, yeah. They're visually arresting. Two of them don't even, oftentimes, these, there are no people in these images, which I find really distressing. But, but yeah. they're images that try to capture the, the power, the, as you said, blast, the heat, and the, the physical effect to the body. Yeah. What you don't ever see are the people who are involved in the longitudinal study that you cited, right, from 1950 on, that just is measuring, yeah. checking in with people to see, uh, you know, what's going on with you since your exposure on that day. And that has shortcomings as well, as we were, as we were discussing. And so I think about that in terms of COVID. You know, one of the insidious things about COVID is the asymptomatic spread of this disease, mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. spreading it from you know, around the world, as we were discussing, um, and they might not ever have symptoms, but they might spread it to someone who then has a terrible case or even even dies. And, you know, from a public health perspective, I, I think that has to be one of the most challenging aspects of dealing with this disease. And I'm not even talking about anti-vaxxers or people who don't believe COVID is real. I'm just talking about people yeah. who have a hard time getting their mind around a danger they can't sense. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's the definition of radiation. You cannot sense. You could be right now. I could be being exposed to enough radiation to kill me within days, and I would have no idea that I was uh, in any way being harmed or had any risk. Um, and and so it is similar to virus in that way, where you you know your encounter with it is imperceptible, um, and that can create a, a, a broad range not just of dangers, but also of anxieties uh, that, you know, when you go outside, you don't know if, you know, when like at the beginning of the pandemic going outside, you did, you know, when we didn't quite have a sense yet, like, for example, is it, can you get it from surfaces? Can you get it from, you know, you, you just went outside and, and the outside just seemed to be a zone of danger of, yeah. of yeah. ill-defined danger. And uh, you know, that creates created for all of us tremendous anxieties um and and so there's there's real similarities in that way um of of not of of having and and part of the thing with radiation is that you you also uh unlike let's just say anti-vaxxers telling you that this is all made up with radiation you have medical professionals and scientists telling you that you have nothing to worry about so it's coming from authority figures yeah, and yeah. people who who then like up in Fukushima, when farmers are like, or mothers are like, you know, no, there's danger. And scientists are like, no, you just don't understand radiation. And they can use a discourse, which is disempowering to the person hearing it so that the person is like, well, I guess I just don't understand. Um, but they are seeing sickness around them. This is, this happens in all these global Hibakusha communities is people mm -hmm. start to see, you know, uh, more sickness than is normal, but they're being told if, if there's enough authority to care, I mean, in a lot of, you know, nuclear test sites, these are really impoverished, remote colonial right. or post-colonial places. If there's enough people, like, let's just say by the Nevada test site, people in Southern Utah, where there was a lot of fallout, well, there's officials there, there's government officials there to tell you there's absolutely no risk. You're completely safe. There's no radiation. And you don't know how to 
assert, you know, your own, that, that there's some sound reason for your own worries or your own anxieties. There's a, I mean, there's a term for it, right? I mean, radiophobia. Yes. Right. Tell, tell me about the history of that term. Yes. Radiophobia. Radiophobia is, is a term that really emerged after Chernobyl. Um, after Chernobyl, Chernobyl radiation spread all over Europe uh, and, and really came down heavily in some parts of Europe and many of them far away from Chernobyl, uh, far away from the plant itself. It just depended on how the winds blew and when the rains fell, because rain tends to bring the fallout down in larger amounts. Um, so a lot of people in Europe worried that they were exposed to radiation. And uh, that this uncertainty also allows people to think every illness I have is, is because of radiation, um, because it's ill-defined and, and uncertain. Uh, and so the, a lot of the, the, a lot of experts, especially people that are trying to calm the public, which is one of the main things that governments and agencies try to do after a nuclear event is calm people down. They believe panic is the real danger, um, is, that they will tell people, you know, oh, the radiation levels are low. There is no risk. And people don't necessarily believe it because first of all, it's not exactly true, but also people just feel like they're not being told the truth because it's so dismissed. There's such a dismissive tone to it. And there are previous times where people are harmed by radiation uh, that the a lot of people who were in the radiation health business managing, managing, uh, these populations and using the studies from Hiroshima as a way to say these people, none of them were affected by radiation because the radiation, the external levels are too low. So they came up with this term radiophobia, which, which clinically, and it's been a clinically used term means an, uh, an irrational fear of radiation. So these people are not suffering from exposure to radiation. They're suffering from an irrational fear of radiation. So what we need to do is we need to calm down their anxieties, not that we need to be vigilant about their exposures, but we need to calm down their anxieties. And this is a way, first of all, of blaming people who, you know, in the case of, let's say, Fukushima or Chernobyl, here you have people who are just going about their daily life and suddenly because of an industrial accident, there's risk to them that they're worried about and they're uncertain about. Uh, anxiety is the proper reaction. It's not irrational. It's a rational reaction. If there's been a plume of radiation that comes down near where you live, being worried about it is really a rational thing to do. Every place that has happened, people have gotten sick. Um, so it's dismissed. And what, what is a natural reaction you know, just like being afraid, being anxious about being in a crowd during COVID, you know, this is, it's not irrational. I mean, imagine if, if people, and, and of course, you know, this kind of discourse comes up in anti-vax communities, but that like going to a store or going to a movie theater, oh, I'm worried because of COVID while well, you're just crazy, you know, but, but this is coming from medical professionals, this, this notion of radiophobia. Um, and so it's a, it's, it, in this case, uh, it's it's a form of victim blaming. You know, you know, we've here you've been exposed to radiation, and now there's some risk, and you just need to be quiet because you're a little bit crazy about this. And it's frequently been used to de to denigrate women. Um, for example, up in Fukushima, there's a there's a really wonderful book by uh, 
excuse me, the name of the author slips my I know. mind. But, I was wishing I could call it up. It, uh, um, yeah, it, it's radiation brain moms. That's it. And, and this is a term, this is a derogatory term for mothers who are worried about the health of their children in Fukushima. And, you know, that's so insulting. You know, I mean, on the one hand, especially in a society like Japan, Mothers have an incredible expectation of being very focused on the wellness of their children and the development of their children. And so to take that worry when, when there's an industrial accident and a distribution of toxins and to go, they're just crazy. You know, these moms are just crazy. It's just really insulting. And so, you know, along with all of the physical risks comes this emotional becoming this sort of plaything of people who want to control your behavior and make you calm down and believe the things that you're being told. Um, so it, it, it's very confusing. And one of the things that ends up happening is that this discourse is used by radiation professionals uh, to confuse you, to confuse people. And it's a tactic because you can explain, uh, you know, when I'm, when I'm talking to people who don't, who've never studied this before, I can explain the risks from radiation in ways they can understand. Um, so anytime that somebody is that met, that professionals are explaining radiation to you in a way that you're like, I, I guess I just don't know how to understand it. That's a strategy. That's not, you know, mm. let me just, um, that book you mentioned, uh, it's a great book, radio radiation brain moms and citizen scientists, the gender politics of food contamination after Fukushima. Um, and yeah. the author is Aya Hirata Kimura. Um, right. Can you spare me a few more minutes, Bo? I've got a couple more questions. Sure. And, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I guess, you know, what I just want to ask you this sort of directly. I mean, it, it seems like there's a, a sort of vast injustice here in terms of, you know, the global hibakusha. But we don't have good tools to talk about disaster justice and injustice. And um, they're very, you know, questions of harm are very, they're, they're very hard to prove. They, they demand evidence. They're circumscribed to specific national legal traditions. They privilege experts. They privilege experts within expert communities, oftentimes who have specifically esoteric knowledge. And I can't think of, you know, nuclear engineering has got to be one of the most esoteric of all of the expert knowledges in the 20th century. So it's a real problem, and yet it's still there. I mean, we, you and I have this conversation. You talk about people who are exposed, um, who have real health risks, and then they also they suffer from anguish, mental, and then also, you know, being moved from places that they, that their families have lived for generations. So there's real harms done here, and in some cases, limited ways, governments have made payments, but it doesn't seem to rise to the injustice of this. And I, I guess I wonder how you come at this from that perspective, because it, there's a demand made, I think, by your work in general. And that's why I like reading it, like talking about it with people, because there's a sort of demand that's made here, that there's a set of actions that are waiting to be taken. What are those actions? How can we talk about justice? Well, I think that first and foremost, as is so often the case with historical injustice, there needs to be an acknowledgement of wrongdoing and an apology. This is fundamental and foundational. 
um, people who were displaced from their land and now their land is too contaminated to live on, which is lots of people, you know, they need to be told this was wrong. I mean, there, there's more that needs to be done, but foundationally, there needs to be an acknowledgement of the legitimacy of their suffering. And there needs to be an actual sincere apology. And clearly that apology needs to be followed up with uh, compensation for medical care, uh, compensation for losses. Um, and, you know, these, and so, and these things are not happening. Uh, and so it is, it, it is outrageous. And this book is very much as much as it is an academic book. It's in part an activist book, which is, uh, which is trying to raise awareness. And so, um, one, this is part of the reason that the structure of the study is, is global. Uh, because when you look at a million people or several million people, when you look at people all over the world and you realize that it's largely, except for the accidents, it's largely people with no political power or people of ethnic or political minorities or, or religious minorities. And you realize the sort of colonialist nature of the people who are selected to be, to endure these, the, these histories. Um, you know, there's a fundamental power imbalance and, and, and looking at it in just in relation to the perpetrator nation, you know, it looks like a, like a bad thing happened, but looking at it globally, we can understand that something really terrible has happened. And so um, there's a lot that needs to be done. There needs to be compensation. There needs to be remediation of land. Um, and, and, and ultimately, the thing more than anything else that I think needs to be done foundationally is that we need to abandon these technologies because this is the beginning of an incredibly long period of time. I mean, as you know, high-level nuclear waste will remain dangerous for hundreds of thousands or actually millions of years. So this violence is being extended temporally. I refer to it in the book as temporal violence. We're exerting violence against people in the future, and they will know far less about it than the people who know that there were nuclear tests or know that there was a nuclear power plant accident. 500 years from now, 5,000 years from now, People may have some information about that, but odds are that they're not thinking of their in their nearby environment and their food sources as contaminated, um, and that they will be facing this. And so one of the main things, we, we need to take care of the people who have experienced harm now, but we need to stop generating harm that will ripple forward for thousands of generations. We've already, we've already done this. There are spent nuclear fuel hundreds of thousands of metric tons just of the fuel rods from nuclear power plants or reactors to make plutonium, hundreds of thousands of tons. This is the most substantial thing human society has ever created. A hundred thousand years from now, where no building we've ever built will still be standing and no language we've, we're speaking will be spoken, that waste will be intact and it will be creating toxic and radiation risk for people. So since this violence is extended so deep into deep time, outside of taking care of the people who've experienced harm now, our obligation to future generations is to limit the harm we're doing today. Stop generating more spent nuclear fuel, stop manufacturing plutonium, stop creating more violent materials ultimately 
whose impacts on people will be absolutely unknowable to us. And we can comfort ourselves that, oh, it'll be fine. And that is just a way of turning ourselves away from our own actions. So the primary thing for me that we need to do is stop um, and then do our best to remediate the material we have, to contain the material we have, and to compensate the people who have experienced suffering and loss. You know, it seems that that we did reach an inflection point with Fukushima in the sense that there's, you know, many countries that either stopped their nuclear power generation entirely or they um, put a sunset. And some of those sunsets have been through a couple of election cycles and still held up. Not all of them have yeah. held up. You know, it's really quite fascinating to pay attention to the discourse here in South Korea mm -hmm. um, because they have talked about, you know, ending nuclear power here in Korea. But, but that has not ended the nuclear power export business. Yes, so we also right. end up this, with this strange dynamic where there's countries where the production of nuclear technology is a, pro, is a profit sector. And, and so it may be deemed not the right path from a safety perspective for the society you know, for the future, but it's too hard to let go somehow. And then there's still the maintenance of the plants that will go on into the future. I wonder what you, you know, how you come down on that. I mean, your issue about um, let's just, what we could do right now is just stop in our tracks and stop making nuclear weapons and stop making nuclear power. Um, do you have any sort of optimism right now? Even the case I just, I just said, there's so many mixed pictures here. Countries have said, we're not going to do it anymore for us, but we're going to make yeah. it for other people. I, I don't know. What yeah. And there are, about. there are places where it is expanding, like in China and in India and, uh, and even in, in Russia, um, but I, I do have, uh, optimism for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that it's not economically viable. I mean, one of the main reasons that countries have sunsetted it, like Germany, is just that nuclear power plants, uh, are, are an incredibly bad economic investment at this point. Um, the French company that, uh, Arriva that manufactures nuclear power plants, they've been working on a, fifth nuclear power plant in Finland for 20 years. They've still not close to getting it done. And so partly because of the incredibly decreasing cost of renewables, uranium generated electricity needs to be subsidized to be competitive. Mm -hmm. So it's really the market has turned away from it. Uh, and, and that is only going to increase because we're only going to get better and better and better at making low cost renewable sources. Um, I also think that we're very likely assuming that our, you know, we will have disruptions from global warming, but, uh, the systems that we're likely to evolve over, over time are going to be decentralized power generation, which is why, uh, renewables suit it. Just like when, when, when I was young, all phone calls went to a central place where somebody plugged it into someplace else. We, you know, our energy production was done in huge, is done in huge central locations. We lose a lot of energy on the transmission lines, right. but ultimately now we all have cell phones and the, the system is distributed. And this is the way that energy is likely to be. This is the kind of model that's a sustainable model over time. So the, the whole model of nuclear power plants is really not very sustainable. Um, and so I, I'm, so I, I think that the technology is right now just hanging on and trying to expand in places and trying to, trying to subsidize the expansion in places, but it, it's really not a viable technology economically. 
There's something else really powerful the way you talk about justice, and and um, again, it, for me, it ties back to COVID very well. You know, um, COVID has revealed uh, vast health inequalities around the world. It's even today revealing vast inequalities of vaccine access around the world at this point, um, and that the burden of that, I think, sometimes shuts down conversation. It's the same yeah. as the conversation around slave you know, reparations for enslaved people in the United States, that even people who may be interested in that, they feel that that's morally just. But then it's the minute they start talking about now logistically, how are we going to do that? Just, yeah. you know, I think it ties in some powerful and interesting ways to the global Baksha problem. The, the weight of that discovery process can stall people out. But I like what, you know, your sort of point is like, okay, we'll leave that there for the moment, but let's talk about the intergenerational future. There are things mm -hmm. we can do right now just to address health inequality around the world. And yes. what COVID mm -hmm. revealed is that it's getting worse, not better. Yeah. So let's let that be our lesson of COVID. And I take, so when you talk about some optimism, I think that's, that's where I feel some optimism, particularly younger people um, who have not let sort of, uh, the reality of climate change or the reality of COVID um, or the reality of the problem of nuclear weapons and nuclear power that hasn't let them, hasn't stopped them from protesting for equality. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if that's sort of what you want to engage in your book as well, but as an activist, so you're a great scholar, but as an activist, I want to hear a little bit more from you about, about how we agitate for a sort of just future. Well, I think that one of the key things is to raise a kind of sense of global citizenship. Um, you know, these problems, you know, this pandemic, right? It, it really, I mean, countries can mediate a little bit what ends up happening within their country, but ultimately it's a global phenomenon. And ultimately there needs to be cooperation. This is exactly the situation with global warming. You know, it can only be addressed collectively. Um, so the, Part of what we learned from nuclear fallout when fallout entered into the ecosystem is that it was radioactive fallout in the ecosystem is like radioactive tracers. When you go to the doctor, you can see the system because you can track the fallout moving through the system and you can see the dynamics of the system. And it demonstrated to us that we live in a single ecosystem and it doesn't matter. That, for example, there's radioactive fallout from nuclear testing everywhere. It's been found in Mariana's trenches in the North Pole on Mount Everest, it's it's distributed globally uh, because it's one system. And so the more we begin to understand that what we're managing is a single system and it doesn't in any way take away from our own in national identities, local identities, these are vital parts of our daily life and our community living. Um, but we also really need to evolve our sense of being participants in a collective ecosystem. And so that has to be managed from that global perspective. And so I think that this is something young people grasp in a way that is much more uh, uh, much more visceral than my generation of kids that grew up in the Cold War where the world was separate places and um, and and also the ocean was a giant place where you could throw things and, it, and those things went away. Uh, we now understand that things don't go away. You, you dump all that smoke into the atmosphere for, you know, for a century and it doesn't go away. Uh, and so we do need to take responsibility for the collective. And hopefully 
part of what that kindles in people is an is is an economic and a justice understanding of being in a single system that the suffering and and uh, inequalities that people experience it's not it, it, we'd like to think that it's happening over there to them but ultimately it it will reflect not just reflect on us but it but it it becomes internalized it's a part of the world that we're living in so part of thinking about our descendants and part of thinking about the world how to be how to be good ancestors how to leave a world a better world for descendants instead of a, a destroyed world for descendants uh it, these connections the more we can understand these connections between the the indelible connections between us all uh the the easier we have really strong motivations to begin to think differently than we've been thinking um so now, needless to say, there's there. You can say that there's some pie in the sky aspects to that, um, because we do live in a brutal world, and we're all very well aware that we live in a brutal world. You know, it's very, we're this week we're we're really we're viscerally aware yeah. that we live in a brutal world. Um, and so, one so one of the things that to me is has has always seemed like wisdom that I cherish is something that uh, the novelist Doris Lessing said. Um, Doris Lessing, who was a British British author, won the Nobel Prize for Literature in her 90s. Uh, child of empire, she was born in in what was British Iran, grew up in Rhodesia. Um, one of the and and what became a communist in her youth because being a communist in Rhodesia meant opposing apartheid. Hmm. Uh, the people who opposed apartheid were the communists in hmm. the in the 30s when she was young, um, and so she. She said in, 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 in her later years, in her 80s, or maybe even in her 90s, that, that when she was young, the things that seemed so horrible and, and so brutal, and that she, as a young woman, couldn't do really anything to change at all. And specifically, she's speaking about the British Empire and also Stalin's Russia, because even though she was a communist when it came to dealing with apartheid, she also was well aware of the brutalities in, in Stalin's Soviet Union. Um, she said that now as an older woman, those things are gone. Uh, they're both gone. And that this is the nature of history is that all of these things that seem impossible to move, they will be moved. And what she said was that young people should realize that every little thing you do is a part of how that eventually comes to pass. And so we should feel empowered in our small actions and in our outrages and we sh and in our efforts. And we should feel like, you know, we may not see in, in a in a clear sense of time, the impacts of our work, but we should understand that we're doing work that is work that is an essential part of how history moves. And um, so, so this is the way that I feel about this kind of activism. And I also feel like we, we are not going to get, we're, we're not going to succeed in not beginning to deal with our ecosystem as a single place, you know, that there, because it is. And so we're, only, we're either going to make more mistakes. We probably are going to make more mistakes and continue to do things that disrupt our lives and disrupt our societies and create disasters. Um, but those things need to be honing us towards a different relationship with with the environment that we live in. Well, amen to everything you just said and, and underline also the, the fact that you've also, you've illustrated a sort of a methodology of doing this. And I think that's one of the things that people, Scott, that I'm bringing back to academia, um, scholars struggle with because 
you know, the pressures of academia is to push people to become greater and greater analysts of smaller and smaller problems. But disaster studies, which I think has great potential, is one of these areas where I only want to see transnational and I only want to see global work. And, right. and I like I like micro studies. I like ethnography, but I like yeah. them when they're placed in relief with other with other domains because that's the way we will make some progress. And I don't know a single disaster studies scholar who's not also they may not always call themselves an activist, but they got into this type of work for a reason. There's other areas you there's other things you can study that are not as heartbreaking and not as physically challenging as doing disaster work. Uh, and so again, sort of endorsing this methodology that you're that you're talking about. And I think the COVID studies that are going to come out are going to have to be global. And they're challenging because they require you build a network of, of sites and you have to collaborate with people and there's language shortcomings. It's a lot of it that's very humbling about doing global work. Um, but I think we have to do it. And um, I, I've been a little greedy with your time. I'm just going to ask you one more sort of half question, which is just, sure, that, sure. Um, just whenever you do get sprung from your COVID jail, uh, where's the first place you're going to go with your notepad? Um, well, I actually am hoping I will be sprung in a few weeks just for a trip back home to see elderly family and also to meet a new granddaughter. Ah. So, but that, that's not a work trip. Okay. Um, uh, I, I currently have, because of some of the research projects that I'm engaging in now, I am intending to be in French Polynesia, where the French tested nuclear nuclear weapons. Uh, I have a research project that's focused on that. And I also have uh, a research grant that I've had to delay for a couple of years, which is really focused on American radiological contamination. Because I, you know, the place with the most nuclear tests on earth is the Nevada test site, over 900 nuclear detonations in Nevada. Uh, the most Toxic place in North America is Hanford, Washington, where the U.S. produced most of its plutonium for its nuclear weapons. Um, there's a study, for example, that came out last year, 2021, that found fallout from nuclear testing in Nevada in samples of honey in 40 or 50 places on the eastern seaboard of the U.S. So this is, you know, testing in the atmosphere in Nevada stopped in 1963. Uh, so this is almost 60 years later, you're still seeing this material cycling through the ecosystem. And so America has this sense of itself as a place that used nuclear weapons, not as a place that is really experienced a lot of contamination from these technologies. And so I'm, I'm planning to do a more in-depth study about the specific localities and processes and legacies inside the United States to help try to shift American understanding of its relationship with nuclear technologies from one of triumph to one of endurance and, and difficulty. So, so I want to complicate just, that. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad you're, first of all, you're going to go see family. And then I knew you were going to have interesting places to go, to go after that. Uh, I just want to remind folks I've been talking to Bo Jacobs, and you can check out his work in a number of different places. You, he has a, a website. You can go to bojacobs.net. You can check out his work around the Global Hibakusha Project at globalhibakusha.com, G-L-O-B-A-L-H-I-B. 
A-K-U-S-H-A.com. And then you can also check out um, website for the new book, Nuclear Bodies. And um, the new book is titled, sorry, let me get the right thing up here. Um, calling back to a book that we were talking about a little bit earlier in the conversation here. There we go. Excellent book about Fukushima. Amazing book. Um, Nuclear Bodies, the Global Hibakusha. And you can check that. It's coming out soon with Yale University Press. And I cannot wait to get sprung from my own COVID jail so that I can come see you and learn from you again in Hiroshima. Bo Jacobs, always a pleasure to learn from you. Thanks for everything you're doing. Oh, Scott, thank you. It's an honor to be on the show. And I'm, I'm really, it's great to see you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.